3: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen McHalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Five Men and a Baby edition. It's Wednesday, April 19th, 2017. On today's show, Five Came Back is the new Netflix documentary. It also had a theatrical release about the legendary Hollywood directors who used their considerable talents and prestige to help their country win World War II. It's based on the 2014 book by Mark Harris, who joins our discussion today. And then, Let a Thousand Think Pieces No Longer Bloom, the TV show Girls is over. We discussed the finale and the whole phenomenon with the New Yorker's Gia Tolentino. And finally... United Airlines is the latest company in the age of Trump to find its tactics and its identity come under withering attack. What to make of the grisly footage showing a passenger being dragged off an overbooked flight? We're joined for that discussion by Slate's own Laura Miller. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia.
1: Hi, Steve.
3: Julia, I'm so sorry to hear that you're under the weather
1: I've been laid waste by some kind of allergy-related cough, so I'm trying to minimize my talking today. I'm going to join for our conversation with Mark Harris because I watched all of Five Came Back, and it seemed like a lot of prep to put on another potential gabber. Um, Plus, every self-respecting Mark Harris fangirl wouldn't pass up the chance to talk to him, and then um, I'll I'll rejoin for endorsements and plus.
3: Lovely. Well, thank you so much for being a trooper, Julia. And, of course, we're joined by Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana.
4: Hello, Steven.
3: All right. Well, well done. Mark Harris is the author of Five Came Back, an extraordinary group portrait of the legendary Hollywood directors who put their good names, their careers, and frankly, their lives on the line to help their country win World War II. Those directors were Frank Capra, John Ford, William Wyler, John Huston, and George Stevens, And the principal contribution to the war effort was to make newsreels, but also documentaries detailing both why we were fighting the war and how we were fighting the war. Um, Harris's book is now a Netflix documentary. Uh, It's also been in theatrical release itself. He will join our discussion in a moment. But first, let's listen to a clip.
4: And just to set this up, the first voice you'll hear is the director, contemporary director, Paul Greengrass, talking about John Ford showing a film that he shot, I believe, at the Battle of Midway. And he's showing it to the, the Roosevelt White House. And uh, as, you'll, as you'll hear, he decides to insert an unexpected shot, which, uh, which moves the president deeply.
2: He found
5: a shot. We'll never know whether it was a shot that he shot there or it was a shot that he found somewhere else. But a shot of President Roosevelt's son
6: then he set up a running of the film at the White House with President Roosevelt. And just before the White House running, he said, now put this in. I was told that that running, Roosevelt uh, talked the way people do, and that Roosevelt would say, oh, yes, that's uh, B-17, and that's... And he kept talk- you know, and he had a lot to say about the film. Then when, when uh, Jimmy Roosevelt's picture came up, everything was silence, dead silent. Nobody spoke from the time that that shot was on the screen until the end. And then Roosevelt turned to Admiral Leahy, who was his senior aide, and said, I want every American to see this film as soon as possible.
3: All right, well, we are thrilled to be joined uh, by Mark Harris. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
3: It is such a pleasure to have you. World War II appears to us now as both kind of immense and inevitable. But, of course, in the 1930s, when your story properly begins, it was anything but uh, But that, especially to Americans. Well, describe a little bit what the attitude of both this country and Hollywood was towards the impending war. And then what Hollywood did to help change that.
5: Well, you know, the attitude... Uh toward the impending war changed depending on how closely the war was impending but but one thing that really struck me was that uh you know the the country was divided uh y- you know across the country and in congress there were absolutely um, isolationists, uh, people who said, you know, this is Europe's problem, let Europe solve it. It's, it's, uh, nothing for the United States to be meddling in. And that was bound up with a lot of antisemitism. Um, you know, that, uh, a feeling that, uh, Jews in America were the ones who were really trying to, uh, impel the united states toward intervention because they had mixed loyalties they had one foot in america but they had one foot in the old country and that in turn was tied up with suspicion of hollywood which was we have to remember still a very new industry you know sound movies were only a decade old when war broke out in europe and um it was seen as an industry run by Jews, by immigrants, by first and second generation Americans, by subversives, by communists. Uh, you know, there was a lot of um, contempt for and suspicion of Hollywood uh, from Washington and even from the rest of the country. And that's one thing, one of the many things that uh, the beginning of the Second World War really turned on its head.
3: Mm-hmm. And these five directors, just to quickly name them again, Capra, Ford, William Wyler, John Houston, and George Stevens, I mean, it's not as though they had played a small role in creating, by the late 1930s, something of the mythic self-image of uh, America for Americans. W- what was it about, if you could briefly say about each one of them, that they brought to the war effort?
5: Uh, well, you know, one interesting thing about uh these guys in the war is they they were all all except for Houston were old enough to have gotten uh, an exemption from war duty based on their age. They were all from their uh mid 30s to their mid 40s and um Houston could have gotten uh, an exemption because he had some health issues. So so they came to the war voluntarily and at the urging of Washington, which which wanted to pull them in because of their incredible skill in in telling American stories and in frankly selling American stories, I mean, Capra uh, and Ford had between them won um, something like six of the last eight Oscars for directing, uh, and the others were were you know established to various degrees as well. You know what they brought to the war was really. Different for each guy. I mean, uh, Ford was the only one to join the Navy. Um, for him, uh, he had been old enough to uh, serve in the First World War and had elected not to. So this was really a, a test of his his own definition of courage uh, for him. And, and you know, he brought, I think, uh, uh, what turned out to be an incredibly uh, moving and emotional respect for loss, for sacrifice, for um, for giving up personal glory for a, a greater good. You see that in his war movies and in, and in his post-war movies. Capra stayed in Washington. He was kind of the hub who supervised uh, the whole um, worldwide army war effort. And he really saw the war as an absolute black and white good versus evil. He called it a fight for a free world versus a slave world, and so the the rhetoric of of what World War II was all about, uh, the rhetoric that Americans heard, but also that soldiers heard, was really largely created by Capra. Um, uh, Houston uh, made three standalone war documentaries, the last of which. Um, uh, let there be light which was about emotionally scarred returning veterans was suppressed for 35 years um, he was the least experienced of the five filmmakers he'd only made about two and a half movies before he had to drop everything and go to war so uh, for him the war among many other things was was uh, a, a, f- a filmmaker training school in a way it was it was where he began to hone his directorial style Um uh, William Wyler was the only Jew of the five directors in the war. It was very, very personal for him. Um, uh, his uh, f- He had grown up in a town that was on the France-Germany border and um, still had relatives and friends there. Uh, you know, He was known as a very meticulous, precise uh, director in Hollywood, and he brought that same kind of commitment to his war work. He didn't use recreations as many other directors did. He didn't use miniatures. He had to get everything right. And Stevens, who was the most lighthearted of the five directors, he had come up doing Laurel and Hardy shorts and Astaire and Rogers movies, um, ended up most in the thick of it. He was everywhere from D-Day to the liberation of Paris to the Battle of the Bulge to Dachau and, um, you know, really ultimately ended the war as the great documenter of war crimes and war atrocities, which was an experience that changed him, you know, both personally and professionally forever. Can I just zoom
1: out a little bit and and um, say, you know, I I don't think I understood the degree to which World War II was filmed. Like I – you know, so much is made of the idea that the way the television news portrayed Vietnam made it the first war that was really viscerally understood through images by the American public. And I, I just was ignorant of so much of this history. And the Netflix documentary is such a great way to begin to understand both – how World War II was perceived by Americans at home, and then the personal stories of these directors um and the stuff they had to learn, you know, about filmmaking, but also bravery and management and human nature and depravity. <laughs> like the the emotional journeys that they all go on throughout the course of the documentary are um are are really striking. But I, I guess one question I had for you was in in moving from writing this as a book to making it as a documentary, What did you learn the second time around, or was it sort of planned... Uh, as, a, as a doubleheader all the way through. No, it was
5: definitely not planned as a doubleheader. I didn't really have the idea that it could be a documentary until pretty close to when the book was published in early 2014. And one thing that struck me was how many people who would read um, galleys of the book would say to me, oh, what a shame these movies don't exist anymore. And I, you know, the fifth or sixth time that I found myself explaining that, in fact, they did, I thought, oh, there, there's a real opportunity here to to retell this story in a way that, um, you know, as much as I can spend a great deal of time and care describing the battle of Midway or the Memphis bell or let there be light, um, showing, you know, 30 seconds of any of those movies has a kind of emotional impact and immediacy that just felt to me like the stuff of, uh, a documentary. And, and, um, also just cumulatively the idea of saying, as you pointed out that, this war was filmed so much more than um people realize that, you know, and it was a big question for us going in, uh, which was like, how many hours can this story sustain, not in terms of how interesting is it, but like, how much footage do we have? Like how how much World War II stuff are we going to be able to find um, to be able to tell this story visually? And um, I was really pleased with the fact that we found, you know, enough to do three hours and seven minutes.
1: Can I ask a question to you, Mark, as a critic, how this work and thinking and research affected the way you view these uh, directors and their work? I feel like I learned so much about directors whose movies I love and some whose movies I know less well. Um, in particular, understanding where the wartime effort fit into Capra's career, um, and how it shaped the work he did afterwards, I thought was fascinating. Um, I also had no idea how handsome John Huston was, Jeez, but, um.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the womanizing worked. worked for a reason.
1: Oh my goodness. But, um, you know, the, the, it, it feels like for all of these directors, their work was profoundly changed by, the, um, what they experienced, um, in war, and I wonder how you how your research makes you look differently at their work as a critic.
5: I've always, I think, rejected um, a kind of purely auteurist view of movies as these things that directors hatch, and you're never supposed to be interested in process or you know personal issues. You're only supposed to imagine uh, the result as something that that is is you know is a thing in itself and, and not shaped by a zillion factors. And so for me, understanding them, um, understanding these five directors more as human beings, which was actually a much slower thing to come while I was researching than understanding what they did. I mean, the last thing that clicked into place for me when I was researching was getting who they were as people. It's only enriched the way I see their work. I mean, you know, certainly to know how much of his heart and of his life and of his own experience, uh, William Wyler poured into, um, the best years of our lives has made a big difference for me, but also uh, directors, you know, I don't think I was particularly in sympathy with a movie like, um, John Ford's, they were expendable or even necessarily with it's a wonderful life. Uh, before I did all of this research, but looking at it's a wonderful life, for instance, like it, It's not as if the only way to watch It's a Wonderful Life is knowing that um, Frank Capra had just come back to Hollywood and was feeling kind of emotionally injured and neglected and forgotten and would indulge himself in sort of thinking, what if I had never been here at all? But it's an interesting way to watch it's a wonderful life and and you know to understand how steep that movie is in a kind of desperate longing on his part for things to go back to being the way they were before the war as if the war had never happened i mean i've always felt that the more you know about the making of a movie um not necessarily the more you can uh Forgive its flaws, but the richer a viewing experience it is. So that's absolutely true with all of the work of, of these five directors. Um, for me, it was true, you know, on my first book, all of the work of the directors of the 1967 movies is is just infinitely interesting to me now because I understand who, who those guys were.
3: Um, Mark, before you go, I, I feel like I have to ask, you are one of my favorite presences on Twitter by far. You're brilliant at it. Uh, just the master of aphorism and concision, but also withering contempt for our current president. I mean, the contrast, I, I just have to ask, right? It's like a kind of perverse kismet that this documentary comes out post, uh, you know, the unexpected victory of Trump, all of its values, which are, I would, you know, just, you know, generosity, decency, self-sacrifice, a sense of one's, a non-isolation, a sense of one's place in the world, a duty, uh, all of them, uh, uh, you know, poised themselves so obviously against uh, our current political fate. Could you just speak briefly to that before we wrap?
5: It's a super strange thing that none of us anticipated. I mean, the the last stages of the election and the election itself um, were happening while um, our editor, Wilson Darick, and, and our director, Lauren Broussereau, were pretty deep into work. And we did take a moment uh, about two or three weeks after the election, just to say, you know, we're dealing with issues of things like fake news and state run propaganda and, and things that have a resonance that we did not imagine uh, they would have. Are, are we doing this right? Are we, are, are we telling the story that we should be telling? And um, we all made a collective decision that we didn't want to change anything, that, that we would let the story speak for itself and let people who were watching Five Came Back find resonance where they would. But but yeah, it shocked all of us. I mean, I got, I got to see the first um, episode uh, at Alice Tully Hall, and it was the first time I had seen any of this uh, w- with an audience. And there's a moment in the first hour where uh, we have footage of Charles Lindbergh making one of his most famous or infamous isolationist speeches where he just says over and over again, America first, America first. And there was actually this kind of quiet gasp in the room. And I can tell you, like that. I mean, that episode is recounted in the book. It was always part of the script. It wasn't something we ever thought would be a kind of shock moment and and yet there it is so so i think all movies in some ways are are slaves to the moment they're born into and and this one definitely got born into a moment we weren't anticipating
3: Mm. All right. Well, Five Came Back is now streaming on Netflix. People uh, should absolutely seek it out. It's marvelous, as was the book it's based on. Mark, it's not sucking up if it's sincere. Pictures of the Revolution is one of the best books I've ever read on American film. It is such a pleasure to have you come on the show. Really appreciate you coming on.
5: Thank you so much for having me. Another day is
2: here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
3: Before we go any further in the show, Dana, we have some business.
4: Yes, we do. The first thing I want to mention is that the Culture Gab Fest's first ever live show in Washington, D.C. is happening tonight on Wednesday, April 19th at 7.30 p.m. at the Hamilton in Washington, D.C. And we will have two amazing guests that we're very lucky to have, Slate's chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie, and John Dickerson, who I don't even know how to identify. John Dickerson, the wondrous host of Face the Nation, host of the Slate Political Gab Fest, and all around wonderful man. The general admission tickets are already sold out, but there are still standing room tickets and VIP tickets, which allow you to come to a pre-show meet and greet and complimentary cocktail with the three of us. So that is again tonight, if you happen to be listening to us on Wednesday, April 19th. Also, we're planning two shows in Australia, as Julia announced last week. The first one will be part of the Sydney Writers Festival on Saturday, May 27th at 6 p.m. at the Sydney Town Hall. And the second one, a few days later, is going to be in Melbourne on May 31st at 7.30 p.m. at the Wheeler Center. And our special guest there, Steve, get ready to squeal, is the Melbourne musician Courtney Barnett.
3: I don't squeal. (laughs) (laughs) Except maybe for Courtney Barnett.
4: (laughs) When you see her live, you'll squeal. I will. Also, um, here's a reminder that Slate has two other live shows, Represent with Aisha Harris and Trumpcast, at the SVA Theater as part of the Tribeca Film Festival. So the Represent show will be on April 24th at 6.45 p.m. and the Trump cast will be April 30th at 8.15 p.m. If you're interested in any of these shows, you can go to slate.com slash live to get tickets and more information. And remember that Slate Plus members will get 25% off your tickets. Again, that's slate.com live for tickets and information. Okay, next announcement is that our Slate Plus today is going to be some bonus content from our conversation with Mark Harris, the film historian and author of the book and now Netflix documentary series Five Came Back. We had such an interesting conversation with him that we went way over, but rather than cut out the good stuff, we thought we would give you the good stuff in Plus. And speaking of Slate Plus, it just so happens that right now is the best and easiest time ever to try Slate Plus because we're doing a promotion. You can get Slate Plus for free for 90 days by downloading the new iOS app at slate.com slash app. And you'll get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months. Decide if you want to become a member after that. And again, that's at slate.com slash app. Okay, on with the show, Stephen.
3: The TV show Girls has been almost like a drug to the community of paid tastemakers and culture beat writers. I think for every viewer it went over, there were something like a thousand words written about it, in case you happen to miss those. The show is about four Brooklynite young female friends and their struggles with and against one another and their own entitlement and narcissism. At the heart of it was the star and creator Lena Dunham as Hannah Horvath. In this clip, we hear her waking up in her new upstate home next to, surprisingly, Marnie. What the fuck?
0: Marnie, what the fuck? When did you get here? Like, 1 a.m. You were just asleep for, like, 13 hours. How did you get in? You think your country windows are secure downstairs? Think again. What are you doing here? I would like to help you raise your baby. Oh, Jesus Christ. You're about to go through an incredibly intense, emotional, tough, but miraculous transition, and I would like to be here to help and support you. Well, this is just like Adam's pitch and that didn't work out so great, so. No, 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 but see, it's not, because I can admit that I don't have like a lot of other things going on. Currently living in my mom's home gym and my Mm -hmm. band broke up, but the thing is, I still have a lot to give, a lot. So why not give it to you and this little angel? I don't know, Marnie, this is just. You think you have a lot of friends, right? Yeah, who's here? Depends on the day. Elijah's not here as sure as hell isn't here. Adam isn't here. Shoshana literally despises all of us. Who's here? I'm here.
3: All right. Well, um, for this segment, we're joined by the New Yorker a contributor, Gia Tolentino. Gia, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: Uh, I want to quote from your really, really, really good piece about the wrap-up of Girls, if that's all right. You write, within a couple of months, you binged the show, uh, it should say, somewhat belatedly. And uh, as you say, you say, within a couple of months, I'd caught up on the series. The binge was lovely and absorbing, and I felt glad that I'd waited. Girls was a different, better, funnier show than its obsessive and often airless coverage had made it out to be. Why don't we start there? I mean, even my introduction had a little bit of, like, you know, irony, meta-ness, and snark to it. I mean, it seems almost impossible not to treat the show as a referendum on something. You make a brilliant point, really, which is that that, that that's really um, evidence of how well-written, directed, and acted it was, that people mistook it for something literal rather than artful. So I'm I'm curious to hear you talk about um, what binging the show meant to you and, and where its surprise lay.
2: Well, yeah, from the beginning, I mean, I'm squarely within the girls demographic. I'm I think I'm Lena Dunham's age. It was as if people were writing about things that were happening to their friends in Brooklyn and covering it as if it were a TV show rather than, you know, writing about a TV show and covering it like it was happening to their friends. Like there was something switched about the coverage. And so I never watched it, even though I worked at women's websites that were writing about it all the time. And everyone kept saying, you know, like, you should watch Girls. It'll, It's about you. Like, it's about us. And I was like, I don't think so. I don't think the show seems like that to me. But then as the final season was approaching, and the the wave of think pieces seems to have died down somewhere around season four or something. And so I decided to just watch it. I thought that the show, it does, it tries to have it three ways at once. To me, this is my impression, that it tried to... Um, satirize the world also aesthetically glorify it and also represent it with an extreme realism and all three of those things flooded around each other all the time and I think it made people really I think it made it hard for people to understand which angle to write about when and what would be what would actually make for interesting criticism
3: Mm. Talk a little bit about how the show ended up. I mean, one brief comment I would have is that is that in 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 an obvious sense, Lena Dunham is a miniaturist in the way that um, Jane Austen is. And if you are pro Lena Dunham, um, you will feel about her the way you feel about Austen, which is that, that 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 scale has nothing to do with the magnitude. Of her genius in a way. And my impression is the show ended up was that it had been epic rather than small. I mean, even though it was so particularly and minutely observed, in some sense it was really about a period and and not a small period and quite a formative period in a group of people's lives. Um and and so in in an odd way I was left with a feeling of largeness at the end of it.
2: I thought that the the final episode seemed like a I mean, everyone's write, writing that it, you know, was like a coda, but it seemed to me like a, like it occurred in a sort of heaven, like it was a, it was a post, like the Harry Potter coda where he goes to heaven briefly. <laughs> like there was something about the end. I mean, I also, which is to say, I also had the feeling of expansiveness.
3: Hmm. Dana, you love the show. Um, tell me why.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was just, I was just gonna mention that
4: our last. I think listeners, regular listeners, will know that our our last episode ended. Literally, the very end was Julia endorsing girls. Uh, which she didn't want to come and talk about because of her HBO connections, but she was loving the end of the show. And me saying, I feel the same way. I love Girls, and I'm not interested in analyzing it at all. <laughs> After which, this is like a classic bad sitcom cut, right? Cut to me analyzing Girls the next week. Um Yes, I do love it. And I feel like the word airless that Gia used in her write-up is the perfect descriptor of the this this bubble of coverage, much of it negative and judgmental, some of it, you know, maybe overly idealizing. But always somehow outside of the show itself. And uh, I think that that point is a really important one, that this furor that's come up about, you know, Lena Dunham's public persona and all these things that have nothing to do with the show itself ignore the simple fact of the writing and directing of the show and how excellent it is and how particular it is. And, uh, And also, I think now you can say at the end of six seasons how influential the show has been, you know, such that we... Are now used to seeing sort of, um, you know, naked on television like bodies on television. I mean, that in itself was a huge breakthrough of the show or young women like the Broad City women being, you know, crazy and messed up in public on television. So I think it opened all of those doors, but it opened them again because of its actual intrinsic qualities as a show and not just because of the splash it made or the coverage it got or something like that. It also struck me reading some of this coverage that I've been avoiding basically for all these years that I just want to watch my Sunday night show and be left alone, that Lena Dunham polarizes in somewhat the way that Hillary Clinton does. I mean, of course, she also got in trouble for, you know, her some of her videos for Hillary Clinton and the part she played in the campaign, which people were saying would turn off more millennials than it would win over. But I think Hillary Clinton and Lena Dunham both have that similar quality of, you know, being these negativity magnets, no matter what they do. And uh, and so there's a part of me that thinks that even though she has made some maybe public missteps as a public figure in general, I really admire the way she's handled her fame, which came acro- upon her as a very young person. And I just admire her as an artist and want to see what she do- does next. It also struck me thinking about the generationality and supposed millennial exemplarity of the show or something that I'm not a millennial at all. I'm basically old enough to be Hannah Horvath's mother if I had had a child too young, as she <laughs> arguably does in the show. But in spite of that fact, in spite of the fact that I am her senior, I, I felt influenced and inspired by Lena Dunham, just by her creativity and her not giving a fuck what people thought and her, you know, forging forward with a creative project. And, uh, yeah, so so she's had that kind of influence, I think, in, in other directions besides those who are supposed to be living the exact life of the, the people on the show.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, it, I mean the coverage of lena dunham I, there's nothing that you know attracts and enrages the public as much as a young white woman who's wealthy and also makes money off of self-disclosure in some way and lena dunham made it into an an art form with girls and with but there's something about the position that as the rough position that people love to people are obsessed with um and people couldn't let it go and so i, I always thought so much of the criticism of the show was purely a criticism of how people saw her, which I thought, which was one of the reasons I just never watched the show, because I thought that I didn't understand that the show was a completely different world.
4: Yeah, I have a feeling, actually, that if I were of that generation... And uh, and I was hearing the constant buzz about the show that you must have been hearing in its early seasons. I would have felt the same way. Like Leave me alone. I'm not watching Girls. I'll yeah. decide what my generation means or is about. You know, stop bludgeoning me with Girls. Right. But the
2: fact is that Girls itself does not bludgeon the viewer. Right, at all. And I mean, and I also thought that, you know, people, the the racial criticism of the show, I think that in the last season, you know, I think it's still true of Girls that... That characters of color tend to be kind of accessories and devices, and but that's how kind of all the characters are to each other. It just gets particularly thorny when it's especially pronounced that way for characters of color. But I also th- think that the criticism of that is the criticism of the real world. It, it's a criticism of the real world that is mapped onto the show retroactively in criticism. That in a way that I think is confusing. Right.
3: So why don't we talk about how the show wrapped up, especially the last you know several episodes that dealt with um, Hanna's pregnancy and eventually. Um, her job. Uh, Dana, what did you make of
4: it? Well, I mean, there were lots of, of mocking and some of, the, some of them were coverage that we read for this that I would otherwise never have read, but there were plenty of mocking pieces about the job that Lena Dunham's character ends up getting, which is a, a teaching job at an upstate liberal arts college that seems to be this Dreamy, cushy professorship in which it's never mentioned that she has no higher degree. She's never succeeded at any of her jobs on the show. She seems to be this struggling internet writer in the in the world of the show. She published one Modern Love column earlier this season. Uh, she, you know, she has these on and off writing jobs, but you really don't get a sense of her as a successful writer. And yet, she's suddenly considered this this sort of hot shit writer who has to get a job at Bard or some some other place like that. So many academics were mocking that. And I think that makes a lot of sense. That's probably no more ridiculous than the usual characterization of academia on television. But that was in a way that girls often is a economically blindfolded decision, I think, to to have her get that job so easily. And it was really to get the job problem out of the way so that the many personal problems on the show could be sorted out. The pregnancy timeline is a whole other question. Uh, I think, like Slate's TV critic Willa Paskin, who wrote on this, when I first discovered that Hannah was pregnant and going to have the baby... It kind of enraged me as a plot development, and this is, you know, this is really not a critique of the show as an exemplar of its generation, but just what you want to have happen for a character. It was, to me, it seemed like a a, a very poor choice on her part, and also there was, I think, a little there was a little bit of cowardice in the show having her not ever even consider an abortion for a second, and that anybody who even mentioned it is sort of placed as a character who's being hurtful to her or saying something unfeeling. You know, when in fact, if if there's any character on television that would at least have considered that or talked openly about the, the thought of
2: considering it, it would be Hannah Horvath, right? So, yeah, I, I thought similarly about the last season, about both of those things. But I thought the season was slipping very overtly into fairy tale. Like Girls is great when it has that weird, degraded, completely surreal fairy tale aspect to it. And I thought the entire job thing, the house upstate, the pregnancy, it was, of it It bore no relationship to reality.
4: Of a piece with the Patrick Wilson episode, yeah. right, from a few seasons and that's, ago.
2: And that's what I liked the best about, th- those are the episodes that I always liked the best about the show. And to me, none of the show had ever really rung that true to me. So I didn't, so it didn't, or it didn't ring very personally accurate to me in any way so when this happened i was just like great this seems like a good way to end the show in an open ended manner um Yeah, completely unrealistic, though.
4: But I will also say, just to wrap up on the pregnancy timeline, that I I ended up forgiving the show for it because I thought it handled it so well. And I really appreciated, too, that it didn't hit—the season did not hit the expected cliched beats for main character gets pregnant episode. Mm -hmm. I was waiting for, okay, when is her first gynecology appointment, where she's sitting in a room with a bunch of other pregnant women and feeling insecure, right? We've seen that a million times. It didn't happen. Where's the birth scene, where we see Hannah giving birth, which could, I imagine, be hilariously written, but it's also something we've seen a million times and we don't see that. We just cut straight right. to the baby having been born. So I appreciated those ellipses. I thought it was a really economical way to tell the story. And the, the right. show
2: finally made use of that that misinterpretive tendency that people have always had, which is, you know, this is not like real life. And the show is like, yeah, mm-hmm. I know.
3: Right. Um, they they did make a, an interesting choice. I know we have to wrap up. But what do you make of the last shot of the episode? I want to hear from both of you.
4: I loved it. I cried. I mean, I knew I was going to cry at the last episode because I'll just miss this show. But I've always thought in particular that the the final credits are are beautifully done. I remember the last scene of season one. I, I don't know if you remember it, Gia, but you've seen it pretty recently probably where her purse gets stolen on the train and she ends up at Coney Island with no money. Remember, and she's eating a piece of cake that she's taken home from a party. And it was a beautiful ending. And uh, I think Girls is really good at that, the moment right before you cut to the credits. And then there's always a great musical moment under the credits. So I won't spoil what that musical moment is, but it's really a beautiful choice in this last episode. Yeah, I thought the last five seconds were a total win.
2: Yeah, I also thought that, as I think someone pointed out, I mean, she she's gotten a, really good as an actor throughout this show. And I thought that her face and the, like the close up was incredible. Mm-hmm.
3: That's great. Um, uh, One very quick comment. There, in catching up with the show, I was grateful to do so. It sometimes it pissed me off, but, but it's just, I mean, the Matthew Reese episode alone is worth a freaking Nobel Prize. It was just absolutely brilliant. Um, the thing that really struck me and made me n- nostalgic for it, even though I'm an old fuck and I'm girly but not a girl, is that it's. Um, about that exact period in your life where you're building your, you're, you're both going to build on that period and you, and you have to obliterate it. And I thought it really told that truthfully, whatever all the other supposedly annoying specifics were. It's a brilliant show. Okay. Gia Tolentino, thank you so much uh, for coming on and discussing girls, and, uh, and people should check out your article at NewYorker.com. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name.
5: The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are.
3: Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. A passenger on a United Airlines flight was dragged from his seat by security officers and off the plane as he screamed. And importantly, as his fellow passengers filmed the episode on their smartphones, as is now inevitable these days, the passenger has been since identified as a 69-year-old doctor. At the time, the reason he gave for not wanting to exit the plane was he needed to see patients in the morning. It's since come out that he was dragged off the plane by Chicago aviation security officers. United has offered a series of escalatingly desperate apologies, and the bloodied passenger now has a lawyer. We're joined for this segment by Laura Miller, the wonderful uh, book critic for Slate. Uh, Laura, welcome back to the show.
6: Thanks for having me.
3: Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Um, I'm curious what you make of this incident. There are many dimensions to it. There's the fact that it happened in Trump's America, there's the fact that the passenger dragged off the plane was of Asian descent. There the fact that smartphones are always ubiquitous and the virality of the video is in some sense what makes the incident quote unquote real. Uh, there's the aura of desperation on the part of the corporation who manages to nonetheless mishandle its initial um, PR communications after the event. What, What should we be focusing in on here? What strikes you as most relevant?
6: Well, it's interesting because it's not about any kind of civic right. It's about a kind of consumer right. And there's a way that it seems like in modern America, we take that far more seriously than some of our rights as citizens that it's such the, the outrage about it, which I think is partly the result of everybody feeling completely abused by airlines all the time is also just the response that I saw was very much about how if you paid for something you deserved, um, obviously, you deserve not to be dragged, kicking and screaming from your ticketed seat. I would
4: would actually contest that a little bit and say, I think it's a place where, you know, civic rights as a, you know, just civil rights and, and consumer rights overlap. And that I don't know about others, but I certainly experienced it almost primarily as a traumatic symptom of Trump's America, not sort of what his business relationship had been with United or what they owed to him, but that every American deserves the right to just not be assaulted and dragged around. I'm really glad we're talking about this, by the way, even though it's a bit late. It's more than a week since it happened. But I really think this is one of the most shocking non-political stories, kind of, you know, I guess business stories or whatever you'd call it, to have come along since the election. It's just this if this is a symptom of what living in America is going to be like, that we're having debates about whether it's okay for passengers to be dragged off planes with Mm -hmm. the two teeth knocked out, a concussion Mm -hmm. and a broken nose, Mm -hmm. which is what this guy went and spent the night in the hospital for. Then you know we're we're not going anywhere good.
6: Yeah, but do you really think it's has anything to do with Trump?
4: Well, I mean, obviously that's a that's an interpretive move, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not some sort of direct order coming down, but it seemed to me like a an a symptom of of the decay of of public space. I mean, is that is that too absurd? Am it's I being... not
6: actually a public space though? I mean, I'm not going to defend the way the airline behaved, but he was on private property.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, let me back up one second. And that's Let's...
6: one of the things that's kind of interesting about it is that we do think of airplanes as being kind of a public space. There's mm-hmm. so many other people on there.
3: Right. But if
6: he were asked to leave a nightclub mm-hmm. and then refused and then was kind of dragged by a bouncer, would that right. be as— well... But if he were
4: randomly selected, he was not— abusive or drunk in the nightclub, he was not harming anyone, and a bouncer just came and punched him and dragged him out, then at that moment, I feel like he becomes a citizen. And it's a public space in the sense that uh, that a restaurant is a public space. I mean, Slate is owned. It's a a private company, but somebody can't just come in right here now and drag you out of the room. No, but they can ask
6: you to leave. I mean, I don't know that they were not. You know, it's interesting, because what are the rights of a person to be on an airplane. What are the legal rights as opposed to what we all feel sort of on a gut level are just their, you know, the human decency rights. Um, and, and, you know, like if you buy a ticket, but then the airplane can't leave for some reason and you refuse to get off. I mean, there might wow. be any number of reasons why somebody would be kicked out of a place where they had paid to get in. Okay. And- and it might just be that the place is closing. I mean right. you know it but, just
3: but but we don't need to be we don't need to be overly abstract or hypothetical yeah. about it because there was a specific set of events here, which is that they were asking him to leave because they had employees of the airline that quote unquote needed to fly somewhere. They had a choice they could make about prior their priorities as a business. and I think it pretty much universally acknowledged they made the incredibly st- stupid one. but let's back up a little bit and say, okay, on earth too Hillary Clinton has properly won the election and this incident happens uh, i think it could be thought of as e- it, it, it could be equally possible that it would happen right that there's no causality there that, that that the boorishness and implicit and sometimes explicit threat of violence of trump's personal style maybe didn't cause the incident in any re- you know in any regard to happen that said we live on Earth One and Trump did win and he does have that style. Therefore, when something like this happens, it is in its own way a kind of referendum on Trump, whether or not it was caused by, you know, an increase in American brutality subsequent to the election, right? That that how are we going to react? Are we civilized? I mean, sort of existential questions about or, or kind of, uh, you know, identity questions about who we are and what we are as a civilization are, are, are way more acute now that we have it Dipshit, you know, uh, you know, who has no sense of what civilization or civil life is as president, and so I do think Dana's right in that sense that this is a, a more acute or more important. I don't know that we would even be talking about this on this show if Trump weren't president in some sense. Like we have to assert our identity as civilized people more persuasively and more omnipresently than we did before because we live on Earth one, not on Earth two. The second thing I would say is that you know airlines are quote unquote private businesses that in fact receive enormous subsidies uh, and dispensations from the government, from the people, essentially the taxpayer, um, left and right in order to operate. They continually go bankrupt. Uh, American airlines, especially not American airlines, the airline, but uh, airlines that are you know, businesses in the United States are notoriously poorly run and poorly managed. Um, I I don't know the specific details of this. I can guess that over the last twenty to thirty years, they've been redesigned to funnel as much money up to their C suite as possible. You know, uh, yes, in some sense, I guess, in some strictly legal sense, you're in a private space. I think the the kind of vaguely autocratic. Um, structure of that private space is important to getting the plane in the air safely and landed safely. You know, pilots kind of in control of that of that space and to a degree the airline and the stewards and the stewardesses as well. That said, the man had bought a ticket that he thought conferred to him the right to be conveyed by that particular airplane from point A to point B. And he was then denied that. Overbooking is a part of their business, but there have to be thought out methods for dealing with that contingency and you know, some kind of a you know, I mean, clearly the 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 normal one is offering more and more and more money, but they hit that ceiling at an incredibly low level, as I understand it, and then resorted to brutality. I mean, I, 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 Laura, your take on this is very interesting to me, but I kind of think I disagree with you.
6: Well, all I'm saying is that that I think part of the level of the outrage of it is it feels like it's continuous with the generally insufferable way that airlines treat even the people who they don't try to throw off of the plane. I mean, there's, there's a sense of embattlement as soon as you get as soon as you take your seat, that you're sort of in for this duration of this experience, you can't get up, you can't do this, but also it's very cramped, you're jammed in there, there are fewer and fewer amenities. And it's like a cattle car. And that, I think that, one of the reasons why it speaks to everybody in a way that actually the arrest of people who are engaged in peaceful protest or or some other sort of civic activity tends to divide the population is that everybody feels abused by airlines.
4: Yeah, I've had a joke for a long time that coach is the class where <laughs> you can't be guaranteed, you won't be kicked. But to have that be literalized and just realize that brute force is behind you know the airline's Threats or desires or wishes against the customer to me was a was just a really chilling pulling back of the curtain, and it made me feel very very different about airports and airplanes and flying. Which you know, in spite of all of their their travails in general, I kind of enjoy. I enjoy travel enough that I sort of enjoy the airplane and the airport part too. But now they they do seem to me like prisons, like essentially places where there's always somebody with a gun waiting to come and you know hassle you. Well, before we wrap the segment, we should talk about United's corporate response, which has been bizarre and disappointing
6: and very piecemeal. How did that strike you guys? Well, in the sort of theater of apology, it was definitely a colossal flop. But I think part of the thing is that there was a um, an internal communication that got leaked Externally, So there was the internal communication where United was telling its staff, we know that you're trying to do the best you can and we stand by you. And of course, because the guy was being forced off of the plane for, um, you know, not for another passenger, but for an United employee,s it just seemed, you know, just to really rub salt in the wounds of that they just don't really care about. Their customers, right, and um, and then they've just been scrambling to sort of fix it ever since. And then the apologies become more and more abject, but they can't really make up for the fact of not having gotten it right in the first
4: place. Well, the first, the first public apology was really just—it yeah. could have been written by Sean Spicer. I mean, yeah. that was another moment of real <laughs> Trumpianism in yeah. this in the unfolding of this event where Oscar Munoz is that his name, the the CEO. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Issued some brief statement that said something about regretting the reaccommodation and this I verb the re-accommodate, reaccommodate just so very rightly became a subject yeah, of widespread mockery. Yeah.
6: But you know, you know that within that little corporate world, they have a million words like that that they use all the time that are complete bloviation and meaningless and are just part of the culture of being inside that corporation. What it feels like is that everybody who works at United just has very little contact with the real world, as if like all they know is other people at United. And they have no idea the way the public views airlines or, or flight travel. I just also don't understand how they ended up picking, picking this guy. He was a 69 year old doctor who said that he had patients to see in the morning. It, it, part of it is that it's just sort of shrouded in this, this, secrecy about how they decided who was gonna get kicked off. Right. And we
4: don't have video of what happened beforehand, right? Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. a little bit of a he right. said she said thing where, you know, he's being framed as that he was belligerent by the airlines and that he refused to get off and you know that he was sort of resisting arrest to use kind of cop speak. But let's face it, everyone is belligerent on an airplane. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? I'm so not on United's side here that I'm actually yeah. surprised that they haven't just been shut down. I think yeah. this is an incredibly shocking event. But but I, what about the fact that he was an Asian American and that, that was apparently one of the, quote, unquote, belligerent things that he was saying when protesting this. Right.
3: Absolutely. I mean, Dan, and that goes to the part of what Laura was saying. If we knew, right, for an absolute fact that they had conducted a totally random lottery uh, to determine who would get booted from the plane, I think we might feel differently about the incident. And if we knew that they signaled, signaled out someone who they thought would be compliant based on racial characteristics, that's abhorrent on a completely Other level, and I think this is all to be determined. And he's lawyered up, and it's probably going to come out. Um, But um, either way, I mean, it was just you know, inartful. I mean, I can't even come up with the right word for it. It was handled so badly from top to bottom. It is. It's hard. I
4: mean, it's it's impossible to imagine this happening to a white man. It's difficult to imagine it happening. To a white woman, it just it it just seems like it's another of these moments. And I'm sorry to keep on invoking Trump again and again, but I feel like things have nakedly come to the surface. Right. I mean, to bring in an unrelated incident at these protests in Berkeley last weekend, a white woman is punched in the face by a Nazi. You know, I mean, there's just these 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 moments of of kind of the public... Decay of morals that I feel like crystal knocked is around the corner when this shit happens. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, this is why Richard Spencer never should have been bashed in the head on camera. Though we don't want to open that can of worms again. <laughs> Laura Miller is uh, is one of my favorite book critics, and I'm um uh, so glad you came back on the show, Laura. It was great to talk to you.
6: It was fun.
5: Thanks.
3: Uh, come to facebookcom CultureFest listeners, and tell us what you thought of this United incident. I'm sure that we've missed some of its nuances, and uh, tell us how it struck you. Okay, moving on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse, Dane. Nah, what do you got?
4: (laughs) That was so much suspense in that N. (laughs) I don't think I can live up to it with my puny little endorsement. I actually do have a small, in the sense of not demanding a huge amount of time investment from the listener, endorsement this week. Maybe because I myself am sick and didn't have the capacity to read anything longer. but it is something really wonderful that I read on Medium this week, a post by a writer named Kate Imbach, who I hadn't heard of before that's about Melania Trump's Twitter photography, which is not something I would have thought that I a cared about and B would have been able to stand looking at. But what she does is essentially this this writer just got very curious about Melania Trump's inner life. If such as it is, what can we know about it? Why is she not stepping up to the plate and moving to the White House? What is it like to be Melania Trump? Obviously, we have very little evidence by which to investigate this. So what she started doing was looking at Melania's Twitter feed and the photographs that she's posted to it over the, I don't know, four or five years that she's had one. I think she's a pretty occasional poster. But uh, this woman basically does a close reading of the photography that she posts, much of which is just atmospheric, like the view from Trump Tower that she photographs at the exact same angle, no matter the season. And a very, very few photographs involving her family. There's only one that has Donald Trump in it. And very tellingly, her face is cut out of it completely. Anyway, Mm -hmm. these photographs tell a sort of mysterious, enigmatic, and ultimately very depressing story about what it is to be Melania Trump. The piece is called Fairytale Prisoner by Choice, The Photographic Eye of Melania Trump. It's on Medium, and we'll put a link to it on the show page.
3: That sounds very cool. Julia, what do you have?
4: I've got a good read.
1: Uh, If you liked Gone Girl, you might also like Sharp Objects, the book that Julian Flynn wrote before Gone Girl, which is um, just as compelling and gripping and strange, uh, and takes place in a twisted Missouri town. Similarly, and um, yeah, read it; it's good. All
3: right. Well, this week, a uh, couple couple things really quickly. Um, it's that season again where um, I auto recite um, Philip Larkin's poem. The trees are coming into leaf like something almost being said. The recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. I, I won't do it, though. Seek out that poem. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I finally ate at Peck's Arcade in Troy, which I knew was going to be great. It was gracious, yummy, a beautifully realized restaurant. You should absolutely check it out if you are in the Capital District uh, region of New York State. Um, those guys are doing terrific work there. But finally, the thing I really want to endorse this week is um, is grilled pizza. Um uh, it's that season again. Uh, we're heading towards, uh, you know, a Chino's and uh, Rosé season. But for me, in addition to the Chino's and the Rosé, it's also making your homemade pizza on an outdoor grill is so Effing good! You won't believe it. It's like orders of I my mean, pizza already is. I mean, it has to be considered among life's most infallibly satisfying things already. The fact that you can bump it up to a whole other level, you can like square it, cube its pleasures, um, uh, by doing it on a on a on a flame. Uh, it's so crispy. It's it gets a little smoky. It's really you. Gr- and then you can like grill vegetables first, and then add them as toppings. Integrate your grill into your pizza making and consuming life. Thank me now. Thank me later. Dana. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Hang in there, man. Get better. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page slate.com slash culture fest. And you can email us at culture fest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culture fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Networks. The Culture Gab Fest is a proud member of the Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of like and different shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens and Laura Miller and Gia Tolentino and Mark Harris and various others who filled in, uh, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll see
1: you soon.